Genesis chapter 6 this morning. And we're just going to read verse 3 and then we'll have a, a word of prayer this morning. Genesis 6 verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And we just commit our time to the, to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to come around your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time now, that you would give me wisdom as I speak. That Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this morning, that you would power me through the Spirit now, enable me to preach, and, and Lord, I pray that you would just quiet our hearts, maybe be ready to receive your word, and to be blessed by your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, last Sunday evening we examined uh, the very strange and terrible events of Genesis chapter 6, the, the first few verses there. And we saw the plain sense of the passage. Um, when you read it and you just take it at face value, uh, the plain sense of the passage is that the sons of God mentioned are indeed fallen angels. Uh, and these fallen angels, they added to their sin of rebelling against God. I mean, they'd already followed Satan in rebelling against the Lord. And so they added to their sin by leaving their first estate, their habitation, and taking wives of the daughters of men. And that's what Jude tells us in the New Testament. Now, how exactly they did this, we're not told. And we talked about that last Sunday evening. Uh, we said that either they were able to so assume uh, human form so completely that they were able to accomplish this, or they indwelt and controlled wicked men to accomplish this. But either way, these unions resulted in giants being in the land, these giants who were monstrous, monstrous in size and also in wickedness. Uh, verse 4 in particular, it says that. It says there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the daughter, sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And so it seems that the whole purpose of this, this whole strange event is that these fallen angels were trying to corrupt the human gene pool. They're trying to corrupt uh, humanity so much that uh, God's plan can't come to pass, that the promised seed wouldn't be able to come and defeat Satan. And of course, try as they might, no one can go against God. You know, God is still in control. God is still on the throne. And so nothing uh, was going to stop God's plans. Uh, no matter how wicked the world became, no matter how uh, small the remnant of righteous uh, that were left, God was still in control. And this morning now, we see that uh, God's response to this sin and wickedness that's in the earth. And so first of all, this morning, we see God's long-suffering coming to an end. God's long-suffering coming to an end. And that's there in verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Now, in the midst of the verses that we looked at last Sunday, we focused on verse 1 and 2, and then uh, verse 4 in particular, we sort of skipped over this verse that's there in the middle. On either side, you've got verses talking about these, these unions between the fallen angels and the daughters of men. Uh, and you've got the, the description of the, their offspring, the children. And in between, you've got this verse, verse 3. But we can't just overlook it and skip it because verse 3 is another interesting and important verse for us to understand 
in the whole scheme of Genesis chapter 6 here. You see, it's a verse which, again, uh, like many of the verses here in Genesis chapter 6, has been subject, uh, subject to a lot of uh, interpretations over the years. There's various ideas as to what verse 3 is actually talking about. Now, the point of question often arises as to the statement, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And the question arises around the word spirit. Okay, is the spirit talked about here? Is, is God talking about the Holy Spirits? Or is this word simply referring to the spirit that he breathed into man when he gave man life? Likewise, the question arises about whether the word man here is referring to mankind in general or whether it's only talking about Adam. Okay, and in the Hebrew, the words are the same. And so the question arises, is it Adam referred to here or is it man kind in general. And then the reference at the end of the verse uh, to 120 years is also debated. Some understand this reference to refer to man's future longevity, okay, because they understand it to be talking about mankind, and so they say it's man's future longevity. Some simply see it as the time remaining before Adam is to pass away. Adam dies. And then, of course, others see it as the time remaining before the flood. And so you can see this one verse there's a lot of interpretations. There are various ideas as to what uh, this verse means, various uh, ideas put forward or opinions. But it seems that, seems to me at least, that when we read the verse in the context it's given, and we read it as it's simply given to us, the natural reading of the verse becomes obvious. You know, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay, if we just read this verse and we understand it as it's written, we read it, it's, it's most logical, most simple sense. It's talking about the Holy Spirit here. Uh, verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. As I said, the most natural reading of the verse, to me, it's, is that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. The, the Lord states that his spirit, my spirit, shall not always strive with man. And so it seemed obvious that it's speaking about the Holy Spirit striving with mankind, okay? Uh, not Adam, talking about mankind in general. And the word strive here is a Hebrew word that's only found here in the Word of God. And it's a word that means to keep down, rule, or strive with man by moral force. Okay, that's the idea here, the Holy Spirit is striving with man to keep down, uh, to, to rule over with moral force. It's the idea of judging or contending uh, that comes in there as well. And so it seems to be a reference to the, the Spirit's ministry. Okay, the Spirit's ministry, the Holy Spirit's ministry amongst mankind there before the flood. Uh, the ministry of convincing and convicting mankind of their sin. You know, in the New Testament, Christ speaks about the, the Spirit's ministry amongst mankind today. Let's just go over to John chapter 16. I'm sure we know this verse, but John 16. Starting verse 7. John 16 verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin 
and of righteousness and of judgment. And so Christ talks about the Holy Spirit's ministry amongst mankind today. The Holy Spirit has this role of reproving the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. You know, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men, convincing and convicting them of their sin, uh, namely the sin of unbelief, showing that they need Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work, taking the Word of God and working in the hearts of men. And this is the ministry. The Spirit is doing this today. They're approving the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so this seems to be the ministry of the Holy Spirit here also in the pre-flood world, a similar ministry in the hearts of men, working in men's lives, striving with men, contending with men. But notice that God declares, he says, my spirit shall not always strive with men. In other words, this, this time is coming to an end. Okay, until now, uh, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has been striving, contending with man. But here, God declares that the time for that work is coming to an end. The time where the Holy Spirit is going to strive with man, contend with man, uh, through that moral force, is coming to an end. The point here is that the moral and spiritual character of the people in the pre-flood world has degenerated so much... So fast that God's patience is now running out. You know, we've sort of talked about that uh, previously, haven't we? This idea that it's degenerated fast. It started with Adam and Eve, and we've been on this slippery slope, just going further and further away from the Lord. And it's, it's got to the point now where God's patience is coming to an end. God's long-suffering. We've talked about that a lot. God's long-suffering is coming to an end especially following the demonic influence that we saw in verse 1 and 2, where the sons of God visited the daughters of men. Especially following that corruption, uh, God's patience now is completely running out. Okay? His long-suffering is coming to an end. And so judgment is fast approaching. Now Morris writes this, he says, It was apparent that the people had become so hopelessly corrupt as to be beyond reclamation. They had completely and irrevocably resisted the Spirit's witness so that it was futile any longer for him to strive with man. And that's the point here. They've, they've reached the end of the road, if you like. Okay? They've got to the point where they're, just, uh, they're beyond reclamation. They're not turning back. They're not coming back to the Lord. And it's got to the point where God must deal with sin. God's patience, God's long-suffering is coming to an end. You know, man was hardening their hearts. That's really the idea here. They were hardening their hearts, ignoring the Spirit, and turning further and further away from the Lord. You know, to emphasize this point, the verse goes on, and it says there in verse 3, And the Lord said, My Spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. For that he is also flesh. You know, man was created to be a spiritual being, wasn't he? Okay, created to be a spiritual being, to have a, a spiritual relationship with God, to have fellowship with his creator. But man was also created as a physical, fleshly uh, being. He had a physical, fleshly body. And that fleshly nature, of course, was corrupted by the fall, the fall wasn't it? Okay, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, that, that fleshly nature was corrupted. There's a corruption there now. There is a sin nature. And it's that fallen fleshly nature that's now dominating mankind upon the earth. It's the dominating part of man, isn't it? 
Okay? And the New Testament talks about the, the struggle all the time for us, the, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, the battle going on between the belie- in the life of the believer. It's a similar idea here. Okay? There, there's no spirit work. Instead, the flesh is controlling this. It's a flesh-dominated uh, world. They're morally corrupt. That's really what this statement tells us. They are morally corrupt. They are flesh. Uh, the commentator Gill writes this. He says, not only carnal and corrupt, but sadly corrupted and wholly given up to and immersed in sensual lusts and carnal pleasures so as not to be restrained nor reformed. And that's the idea here. They're wholly given up to this. They're completely given over to this. They're, they're not listening to the Spirit. Okay? The Spirit's work is coming to an end because they're not listening. They're fully fleshly. They're given over to this. Man's ignoring the witness of the spirits. And so God declares that that time is coming to an end when his spirit will no longer strive with man, for he also is flesh. And instead, God declares that he's going to bring judgment. Judgment upon the world. And so God proceeds to declare that man has 120 years left. That's the end of the verse, isn't it? Okay? And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. The Lord declares man has a hundred and twenty years left. That's it. hundred and twenty years until the judgments. That's when the spirit, uh, Spirit's work will be over and judgment will fall. You know, this prophecy gives man a hundred and twenty years. It gives them notice, doesn't it? And this prophecy here seems to be given before God speaks to Noah. Okay, uh, the first time we see God speaking to Noah is in verse 13. It says, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so it seems to uh, have been given before God speaks to Noah, and so perhaps it was given or delivered to one of the other patriarchs, this prophecy. You know, maybe it was given to Methuselah or given to Lamech. Uh, but either way, This is a prophecy from God warning the people that they have 120 years left until judgment falls. Now, isn't it interesting that even though God's patience, God's long-suffering is coming to an end, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that man is ignoring God's witness, the Spirit, and man is flesh, in spite of that, God still gives man another 120 years. Isn't that remarkable? God still gives them 120 years. You know, Enoch had already warned them that judgment was coming. Okay? He was a preacher about the judgment. We talked about that last Sunday morning. And he also warned them in the, in the naming of his son, Methuselah. Okay, remember, we looked at the name Methuselah, and it means when he dies, judgment. And so Enoch had already told them, when my son dies, judgment's coming. God's declared it. And now with 120 years to go, okay, they've already had 800 almost years or whatever it's been, Okay, now with 120 years to go, God gives them a definite time frame. Isn't God gracious? Isn't God a gracious, long-suffering God? And what's amazing here is that even with God's patience running out, He's still long-suffering. Now we read it. Uh, so we read it last time, but First Peter three speaks about God's long-suffering here. Let's just turn over to First Peter. First Peter chapter three. <clears throat> And verse 20, First Peter 3 and verse 20, it says, Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited 
in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. That's this time. This is the time that it's talking about here in this verse, this long-suffering of God when he waited. Okay, he waited. He, he held his judgment off for another 120 years. It's time still for men to repent, isn't it? Yeah, there's still time for man to realize their sin, recognize their sin, and turn back to the Lord. You see, the point is that by the time the flood comes, man is without excuse, aren't they? Okay, by the time the flood actually comes upon the earth, they were without excuse before God. No one could say to God, you're unfair. You're unjust. You didn't give us any warning. We didn't know this was coming. We didn't know that we were upsetting you. No one could claim that. God had given them plenty of warning. God had given them plenty of uh, time. God was just. God was fair. And the same is still true today, isn't it? The same is still true today. God is still being long-suffering. It talks about that in Peter. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. God's spirit is still striving with man today. Reproving the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God's Spirit is working in their hearts, convincing, convicting them. But you see, just like in the days of Noah, God's patience is fast running out, isn't it? God's patience with man is running out. The day of judgment is fast approaching. We're in a similar time frame, aren't we? Okay, God's judgment is fast approaching. And when God's judgment comes, no one will be able to say, God is unjust, God is unfair. No one will be able to say, it's not fair, God. You see, just like in the days of Noah, man will be without excuse. God has given man plenty of time, plenty of time, plenty of opportunity to heed the warning of his word, to listen to the Spirit and be saved. But sadly, judgment is coming. And that's the second point that we see here this morning. We see judgment now declared. We see judgment Declare. Let's just go back to Genesis chapter 6 there. Genesis 6. And read with me from verse 5. Genesis 6 and verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. You know, in verse 3, God declared that man had 120 years left. And now we're told what it is that brings God to this place, what it is that brings God's long suffering to an end. You know, verse 5 in particular outlines for us the great wickedness that's now uh, right across the face of the earth. It is existent everywhere. In verse 5, just read it again, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, what had begun with a simple decision by Eve to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then to give to Adam, and Adam reached out and took it as well. He made that decision. What had begun with those decisions there in the garden, that simple decision to disobey God, had grown and it had progressed, infecting all of mankind. And we're told in verse 5 that the wickedness on the earth was now so great, it says that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
That's a pretty extreme statement, isn't it? Every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. It's, it's an extreme statement for God to make here about mankind. You know, you need to remember, God created man. He created man in his own image. He created the man, as we said earlier, to be a spiritual being. He created man to respond to God, okay? to respond to God's love and to enter into that, to that relationship, that fellowship with God. To respond with a heart of love towards God. You know, the sin problem had grown to such an extent now that there's only evil in the heart of man. There's only evil. Every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continued. You see, there's no desire in man to follow after God. That's the point here. There's no desire to follow after God. There's no heart for God. There's no response to God's love for them. You know, God's grace, God's love was all around them, but they don't, there's no response. There's no responding to God. There's only evil in their hearts. The commentator Barnes, he writes this, he says, Homage to God, to truth, to right, to love, does not reign in his hearts. The imaginations or purposes that are not regulated by this, however excellent and praiseworthy in other respects, are destitute of the first of the essential principle of moral good. You see, that's the point. Sin reigned in their hearts. Evil was in their hearts only. They had no place for God. And so it didn't matter what else they did. It didn't matter how good or praiseworthy their endeavors were. I mean, the sons of Cain were an example of that, weren't they? You know, they did some great technological things, building cities and industry and everything else, but they didn't have God. And so it didn't matter what they did. You see, that's the point here. Every imagination of the thoughts of their heart, and we're talking about the whole of mankind now. Okay, remember... Noah and his family, the only ones. Okay? This, is, this is the extent of the wickedness in the earth. They've all turned away from God. Their hearts are completely against Him. There's no place for the Lord. And not only this, but the result of this wicked state of heart is that the earth is filled with violence. Just drop down to verse 11. In Genesis 6, verse 11, it says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. The earth's filled with violence. You know, think about that for a second. God created man and he told them to multiply and fill the earth, didn't he? But he told them to fill the earth and, and honor him, glorify him. Instead, man's filled the earth with what? With wickedness, with sin, and with violence. Now, when you read that phrase, filled with violence, you get the impression here of a world that's in a, in a state of terror and anarchy. Okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible place to live before the flood. It's, it's not a good place. You've got these giants roaming around with their wickedness, their, their sin going on. You've got everybody turning against the Lord. Every imagination of their heart is evil. There's violence in the land. It is not a good place to live, is it? It's a terrible place. And you know, when we look around the world in which we live today, we likewise see a terrible place, don't we? We see a terrible, wicked, simple place. But the reality is that we're not yet where the world was before the flood. We're not yet there. Because God's long-suffering had run out. Okay? God is still being long-suffering. We haven't yet made it there. We're not, not yet there. As bad as this world seems, we're not yet there. We're certainly heading that way, but aren't we? We're heading that way. And it seems like we're gathering pace towards that place. The world is waxing worse and worse, and it will wax worse and worse until He comes. You know, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13 says that. It says, But evil men... And seducers shall wax 
worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We shouldn't be surprised that the sin in the world is increasing. Okay? It is going to increase before the Lord comes back. And so this world is definitely heading towards the state that it was in before the flood. We might not be there yet, but we're heading that way. But, you know, is there any wonder here in Genesis chapter 6 that after he paints this terrible picture in verse 5 of the the state of the earth, in verse 6 the writer says this, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Is there any wonder that the very next verse, after talking about the sin, the great wickedness in the earth, the very next verse talks about God being grieved and God repenting that he had made man on the earth. You see, using human terms here, the writer speaks of God repenting. You know, this is how it looks from a human standpoint, from our standpoint, as we look at how God changes his actions here. It, it seems like God repents. It's, a, it's using human words to describe something that God does. You know, the word repent, of course, means to have a change of mind. Okay, that's what the word means, to have a change of mind. But that's something the Lord cannot do. God cannot change his mind, okay, because God is unchanging, God is immutable, and if God changes his mind, that implies that his first decision was wrong, or his first decision was flawed, and so God cannot change his mind, okay, he's God, he's immutable, he's unchanging. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're we're told that clearly, let's just turn there, 1 Samuel 15, First Samuel 15, and just read verse 29 with me. Verse 29, it says, And also the strength of Israel, it's talking about God, <clears throat> and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. First Samuel 15 makes it clear. God is not a man that he should repent. He doesn't repent. God cannot change his mind like man does. He goes against his very character, his very being. So, what are we looking at here then in Genesis chapter 6? Well, as I said, it's a, it's a description of God using human terms okay, to help us understand. Okay, the writer is using these her- human terms to help us understand the response of God. But the fact is that it only seems like God repents. Okay, it only seems like God changes his mind about creating man on the earth or, or repents towards God, uh, towards man, sorry, it seems like that. Why? Because man has changed. Okay? Man has changed his attitude towards God. Okay? And we, we've sort of talked about this before when this idea of God repenting has come up in other places. Okay? But the key to understanding it is that man changed, not God. That's the key to understanding it when we see that God repents in the Word of God. Man changed, not God. Man changed from <clears throat> seeking after him seeking after him and, and, and living for him, being, uh, being righteous and holy to a point now where every imagination and the thought of his heart is wicked only continually. Man changed his attitude <clears throat> towards God and so man now experiences a different response from God. That's the point, isn't it? Okay? Man changed his attitude so they experience a different response. Uh, Morris writes this, he says, God's attitude toward man is conditioned by man's attitude towards him. I think that sums it up really well. God's attitude towards man 
<coughs> is conditioned by man's attitude towards him. And that's the point here. God responds accordingly. You know, man had until now experienced what? God's grace. Now they were going to experience God's wrath poured out. Why? Because of their wickedness. You know, God had created a perfect world for man to live, live in. Perfect world. A perfect place for them to dwell in. God has shown them his wonderful love, his, his grace in every possible way. God had been long-suffering towards them for years as they continued to turn away from him. But there finally came a time when God's holiness demanded that he deal with sin. God's holiness God's justice, God's righteousness. He must terminate the wickedness in the world. You know, Morris, again, he writes this. He says, any further delay would have completely prevented the accomplishment of God's purpose in and for mankind. Man's outward wickedness had become great in the earth because his inward imaginations had become completely evil and always evil. And that's the point here. God's holiness demanded that he must act. He must judge the sin of mankind before it's allowed to destroy all of his purposes. Now, of course, it could never have destroyed God's purposes because God's in control, but it's got to that point now where God must act. You know, the, the sin has spread so far, as we said before, Noah and his family are the only ones who are saved. That shows you the extent of the wickedness in the world, doesn't it? And why God needed to act to preserve the promised line. The promised seed. I think it's also important but that we understand here that judgment came because of man's sin. Because of man's sin. You know, Satan and his fallen angels, they certainly played a part, yes. You know, they had a part in it. Satan, in tempting Eve to uh, make uh, partake of the fruit, he tempted her, yes, but who made the choice? Eve. Eve still made the choice. She still reached out and partook of the fruit and then she gave to Adam and Adam made the choice. Likewise, the action of the fallen angels at the start of this chapter, it aggravated the condition on the earth, but man was still responsible for the condition. You see, demons can only control and influence those whose minds are already so rebellious, so uh, turned against God that they open themselves up to the influence of such possession. You see, man still had a free will. And man gave in to the flesh. Man sought after the things of this world. And indeed, they allowed themselves to be influenced, controlled by these fallen angels. They allowed this to happen. Man was responsible for his actions. I think we need to understand that. Okay? We can't turn around and blame Satan. We can't blame the fallen angels. Man is responsible for his sin. Just like today, we're responsible for our sin, aren't we? Responsible for our own actions. And so man is here accountable and held accountable by God for their sin. And thus in verse 7, God declares that he will destroy man from the earth. Let's just read it. Genesis 6 and verse 7. Read the declaration. It says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The Lord now declares that he's going to destroy man from the earth. Notice there in that declaration that uh, beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air are caught up in this judgment. 
they're going to be destroyed as well. They're caught up in the judgment because they're part of man's dominion. Remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, man was given dominion over all of the earth. Okay, he was given that dominion by God. And so therefore as part of man's dominion, they too suffer. They suffered the consequences of sin when Adam sinned in the garden. And now they suffer the consequences of the judgment that's coming. You see, God must now intervene, and God intervenes in the most drastic of ways, completely beginning anew, wiping out everything on the face of the earth and beginning anew. And he does so with a worldwide flood. Morris writes this, he says, The wicked state of the world required a cataclysmic remedy, nothing less than the unique cleansing of a worldwide baptism in the waters of the great flood. Before demonic wickedness and could gain control of every man, woman and child throughout the entire world, thus destroying God's redemption promises. God must intervene in catastrophic judgment. And it is. It's a, it's a unique catastrophic judgment that God brings upon the earth. A remedy to, to wash the whole earth, as he says here, a worldwide baptism to cleanse the earth of the sin and wickedness found therein. You know, with this judgment declared, this section ends, but it ends with a wonderful declaration of what? God's grace. Verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Noah, an undeserving sinner, because that's what he was, he's still part of a fallen race, an undeserving sinner is saved by grace from the judgment to come. And he's saved by faith. Noah, of course, you know, he would <clears throat> go on to build the ark to provide a way to escape the judgment that is to come. You see, God's grace is still present even here as judgment is declared. Isn't that wonderful? God declares judgment. God says, my patience is running out. My long suffering is coming to an end. You've got 120 years. And then he says, but my grace is still available. My grace is still there. You see, Noah builds the ark and it's, it's there for mankind. Mankind could enter in. They could enter in and be saved. God's grace is present even here as judgment is declared. And that's the wonderful truth. You see, even today, God's grace is available to all, isn't it? God's grace. Judgment is coming. Judgment has been declared. A time is fast approaching, but, but Christ came and died. The, Christ came the first time. He died, was buried, and rose again. Why? To provide a way of salvation, to provide a way of escape. God's Grace to mankind. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace he saved through faith. It's God's grace through faith that saves us. You know, we don't deserve to escape the judgment. None of us do. We deserve, even Noah, he deserved to die in the judgment here too. He's a sinner. None of us deserve to escape the judgment that is to come. But God's grace is readily available to all of us. And by faith, if we'll trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He promises to save us. And like Noah, we will find grace in the eyes of the Lord, saved by grace. I trust this morning you've experienced the grace of God. And tonight we're going to focus a bit more on Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. We'll talk about that uh, this evening. Well, let's close this morning with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that even here, as your judgment is declared, as your time is, uh, the time was fast approaching for the flood to come upon the earth, Lord, even here, 
We see your grace. We see your continued long-suffering towards man. Lord, today we know that this world is fast approaching, the day of judgment, the day when you'll come again. Lord, your grace is available to all. For by grace you save through faith. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, work in our hearts this morning. May we rejoice in who you are. And may you bless as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.